Welcome back. You are doing less once more with John and Jeff. Uh, we're back at it. We took a little break of a week. <laughs> we had some issues last week recording, but um, well, we're back, and mm-hmm. thank you for listening to us. We had a chronic case of doing less. <laughs> my uh, my internet speed was doing less. <laughs> yeah, from what I've heard, though, uh, a lot of you guys are out there. You're spreading the word of doing less. You know, you'll you'll, you'll say, oh, you know, someone will come up to you and be like, oh, man, I can't hang out. I'm swamped with all this stuff. And then you'll be like, ah, do less. And that's good. But you got to get them to listen. We need we need to turn this (laughs) into a cult. Okay, we need the whole world to be doing less. It can't just be us doing less. Yes, that would be good. But that would be doing too much. So just keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Um, on a bit of a somber note, something that we we did want to mention that did happen last week was um, Paul Volcker, who was the the chair of the Federal Reserve um, in the late 70s and 80s, passed away, and he was regarded as some regard him as the last great uh, Fed chairman, last you know, last one who remained not influenced by political pressure. Uh, After him, you got Greenspan, Bernanke, Yellen, and uh, now Powell, who cannot, uh, the same cannot be said about them, but uh, we just wanted to mention (laughs) him, his passing. Uh, Yeah, rest in peace. Yeah, under Paul Volcker, we had interest rates of 20%, so uh, that... Not to say that like that's the right interest rate, you know, maybe that was too high, but he kind of did what he felt was necessary to fight inflation at the time, which was really, really high. Um, and it was pretty unpopular to raise the interest rates that high, but he did it anyway because he felt it would be in the interest of the long-term economy. But at the end of the day, we don't really, really want to have to rely on people to make the right choices right like we shouldn't have this institution where it takes the right man for the job or the right woman for the job to set interest rates according to the good of all of us like that's that's we're asking too much um exactly really this power just shouldn't exist in the first place right yeah to say that one man was you know adequate uh who did a good job is to say that another man could do a bad job (laughs) and when you're talking about the global economy you don't even want to introduce that um possibility and especially when it gets mired with political intermingling uh you can really look at you can really find um some really bad incentives which Mm -hmm. we see with the uh latter Fed chairman. So, um, which brings us to our next point, which we wanted to mention <laughs> about last week, which was the December FOMC meeting, the, the December Federal Open Market Committee meeting within the Federal Reserve. They uh, had that meeting to discuss their rate policy, which was largely understood that they would not do anything, not cut rates or hike rates. Um, ah yes, doing and less. That was that was the case. They did not 
they did they did less. They didn't do our, anything. Our, our podcast is working. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um so the the press conference was pretty much uh forgettable. <laughs> I would say I watched it and I was there was there wasn't a lot said. Um Powell came out and basically said all the same things that he said in previous um you know FOMC meetings, rate policy meetings. Um but the one th- one thing I will say is changing is this whole thing that we mentioned with the repo market uh repo demand for repo market has caused yields to spike within the repo market and he has mentioned that Jerome Powell has mentioned that in the past saying um you know it's just a it's just a technical issue that they're handling um this time he actually came out and said something along the lines of you know we're we're seeing potential issues with like year end liquidity requirements in banks that could cause some concern, but he never said anything along the lines of like drastic measures or like quantitative easing or something to some kind of response. Um, but what he says is not exactly what he does. <laughs> right, Jeff? Yeah. Uh, so for, if you don't know what a repo is, uh, it's not, the same thing as when your car gets repoed. That's something different. Um, <laughs> this, well, it's kind of similar. That's but, an, an important <laughs> distinction. Yeah. So repo, it's, <clears throat> it's short for repurchase agreement. That's not really important. At the end of the day, what it is is a repo is when banks uh, lend money to each other in the short term. Um, but Banks don't always want to just lend massive amounts of cash without collateral. And what collateral is, is it's some sort of asset that can be claimed in case the loan isn't paid back, right? Because these short-term loans are pretty risky. And so banks like to have collateral with them. So if you were to get a mortgage, your house would be the collateral. Like if you stopped paying your mortgage the bank would get your house. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why mortgages are actually, the rates are pretty low. Like if a a bank was just lending you, you know, $300,000, just cash, you you could never get a 5% rate on that. That's, you'd be living in Candyland. So (laughs) it's the fact that the bank can claim the house if you don't pay the loan, that makes the rates so low. Um, and so these repurchase agreements, the, their loans from one bank to another, or not always banks, actually, it's a lot of times it's not banks, they're, linked, they're loans from one party to another in which um, one party buys a bunch of securities, usually uh, treasuries, like US treasuries, um, and then they buy them back from the person at a higher rate, right? So you sell all your treasuries up front for a bunch of cash, and then the person has an incentive to do that because they know you're gonna buy it back at an agreed upon higher price. So this is like a, essentially a uh, short-term loan in which 
let's say I sell all the my treasuries and get that cash, but then I don't have the cash to buy them back, at least the bank still has all my treasuries. So it's a low risk loan, and that's why generally the rates are pretty low. But what actually happened in September was the rates went up to 10%. And the reason for that is not 100% known, but essentially at the end of the day, all that matters is the number of people who wanted to lend money versus the number of people who had money to lend, or the number of people who wanted to borrow money exceeded the number of people who had money to lend. And so that drove the price up of lending uh, up to 10%. And this is at odds with what the Fed mandates the interest rate be. They say overnight lending ought to be 1.75% at the fund, federal funds rate. So if the market is exceeding that, then they're sort of breaking what the Fed sees fit in terms of um, interest level. And so this to the Fed is a problem. And so they have taken the onus to step in and print money to buy uh, securities like treasuries so that there's excess reserves in the system so that the supply goes back up and then that rate comes back to the, down to where they want it to be. That's essentially what's going on. Right, so <clears throat> Federal Reserve printing money is not new, right? That's happened since the existence of the Fed. Uh, repo operations are normal, all this stuff. When the repo market spikes, that's not, that's not normal, right? That means something's going on that the Federal Reserve needed to address. Jerome Powell, in his meetings, in his uh, FOMC meetings where he makes his statement, has pretty much to date just referred to that as a technical glitch, like a technical error. Nothing, nothing systemic, nothing like actual to worry about. Just like, oh, uh, we just need to provide liquidity, short-term liquidity. Um, it's not a big deal. Well, what Jeff just said, they, they've begun printing money to buy to add to their balance sheet, to add treasuries to their balance sheet and absorb, you know, government debt. That is actually also not a new thing. That's called quantitative easing. <laughs> it, that, that was, uh, for the first time, a massive purchasing of government, secu- of government debt um, while printing money by the Federal Reserve uh, began in, after the 2008 crisis, right? The Federal Reserve deemed that it was necessary to address um, un- the unhealthiness of that economy to try to prop it back up with money printing. They called it quantitative easing. And they did three rounds of that over the next six years. So they printed money and absorbed treasuries from banks onto their balance sheets so that onto their balance sheets so that the banks would have liquidity to operate and, and continue to to continue the economy to function and remain healthy. Right. And so the reason they did that is because normally the only lever that the Fed moves in history was interest rate. They would just move this federal funds rate up or down. That was like their control button on the economy. So they move this thing up or down. And usually that was enough to achieve the goals that they wanted to achieve. Uh, We're not 
going to get into right now <laughs> if those goals are even worthwhile pursuits. But essentially at the end of the day is they're trying to achieve some result by changing the interest rate. And in 2008, it was such a big crisis that even though they dropped the interest rate all the way down to zero, it banks were still going bankrupt. The stock market was collapsing. You know, it looked like we were in major, major trouble. And so the Fed deemed this such a worthy crisis that they needed to not only lower interest rates, but also flush banks with excess reserves so that lending could continue and all these other things that happen in a normal healthy economy could keep going on. And so um, these were really extreme measures to take. And so this has not happened at all uh, throughout the course of the um, United States until 2008. So that was like a really significant point in history. And then now the Fed is literally doing exactly what they did in the depths of one of the worst financial crises in, crises in history right now, when things are supposedly very good. Exactly. So yeah, so what happened in 2008 was essentially unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, people thought this is this could never work. This you know this you can't just print money and absorb you know treasuries and also mortgage backed securities, which at the time were mm-hmm. considered toxic sludge by investors. <laughs> um, so it's like oh we can just print money and everything's okay. Well, as long as you can as long as you can resell what you bought at a later date which we've talked about in a previous podcast, is what we tried to do last year, ending in December, because the stock market started to crash. Mm-hmm. So as they tried to unwind what they did in 2008 onward, you know, there was massive negative reactions to it. And what are we doing? where do we find ourselves one year later from that attempt? The exact opposite. What, <laughs> exactly what we did in the first case, what we tried to unwind and couldn't, now we are redoing to and then some. But the difference this time is it's not officially quantitative easing. And that's the point I was trying to get to. Jerome Powell in his statement never at one at any point mentioned, oh, you know those emergency measures we took during the depths of, you know, a financial crisis? We're doing the same thing. He hasn't said that. In fact, he said the opposite. He said he said, "Oh, you think this is quantitative easing? This is not quantitative easing." He come out. He's he has come out and said this is not quantitative easing. When it is the same, it's the same <laughs> fundamentals. There are slight right. differences at this time, but they're it's like arbitrary. It's like not even worth discussing. It's right short term treasuries instead of long term treasuries, which the short term treasuries can just get rolled over, you know, to to have it have a, a long term right. event, but. His unwillingness to even admit that this is the same thing as what happened in the past is very um, disturbing to me. Uh, right. It, it, it's not maintaining open communication. Not. I don't think he's telling us everything that's actually going on. Um, I think he's, you know, creating a PR stunt, which we know that's what the Federal Reserve does. They want to maintain happy relations. They want to maintain, you know, a happy public. Right. It seems like they think if they scare the public, they're going to like scare us into recession. And the idea that your economy 
can only function on good psychology is that a world you really want to live in where the only way things can operate healthily and normally is if everyone is just like things are great things are great like that's not a normal situation like if you're let's say let's look at a business right like something like exxon right they uh drill oil and they're they're involved in basically all the the process of getting oil out of the ground and then getting it into your car i don't care how scared you are or how bad you think things are you're still putting gas in your car to make it go like that business does not rely on your psychology very heavily in fact gas is pretty inelastic in terms of like things like that and so if your entire economy is just like it needs to perpetuate this psychological condition that things are fine or else the whole thing will collapse to the ground like is that really a good thing do we want to be living in that world or is like maybe we need to take a step back and be like okay you know maybe we want to live in a world where it's okay if people get scared the world can continue to operate no matter if people are scared or not like this is very suspect thing to believe what what the what the feds um goal what they're trying to do it reminds me of if if i was to take a girl on a date right and say i work really hard i have a you know good car i show her my house it's a really you know it's worked really hard nice house right and we're going on dates and it's working out you know it's going really well and uh on the third date i decide to you know try to say a, a, a Try to make her laugh. I, I tell her a joke, and the joke doesn't really land. Um, I try to salvage it, but it, you know, she's just like, eh, didn't really do it for me. Well, what is that relationship built on? She, you know, we, we had a lot of trust going into it. She likes the way I live my life. She respects me. And what's going to happen at the end of that date? I probably have a pretty good chance of maintaining the relationship. <laughs> you know, she's probably not going to hold that one over for too long. <laughs> She might just say, okay, that was a pretty bad joke, but I don't really care. Like, do better next time. <laughs> try to, try to be, impress me better next time. But now let's, now let's imagine, instead of, that li- instead of that life I was living, I was in debt. I'm not responsible. Um, I don't really have anything going for me, but I want to impress her. So on the first day, I show up in a leased car that I can't afford. I, uh, I show her, you know, I, I get a hotel room for the night or something, and I really try to impress her uh, with, like, an expensive, exorbitant date, right? Well, how long is that going to last? Maybe I'll make it to the third <laughs> date before my credit cards get <laughs> cut up. My lines of credit are all, you know, are all used up, right? On that third date, she sees I, I had been renting clothes even, that I was going to return the clothes I'm wearing the next day. And she sees the tags still on my clothes. She's just like, ugh, like, this is not, this guy is a, this guy's a loser. And I like say like, but wait, I have a joke. I, <laughs> let me tell you a joke. And I try to like, I try to convince her that I'm, I'm funny at least. It doesn't even matter if I say the best joke in the world. She's probably still going to leave me. It's probably not going to work out. I've been maintaining this facade, this front for her. I'm trying to make it work on superficial, my, my superficial looks mm-hmm. and, and the yeah, just the not real stuff. Well, it doesn't matter what I say in that date. If she re, if she's catching on to my real life, mm-hmm. she's probably gonna 
not care about in that scenario. She's not going to care even if I say the funniest joke in the world. <laughs> you know, maybe she'll go on one more date with me before she's like, you know, I really can't stand this anymore. Like, yeah, he's yeah, he said a good joke last time, but he's living an unsustainable life. In that first scenario, it doesn't really matter what you say um, superficially. Like the the merit is in the actual lifestyle. Like mm-hmm. if you're leading a responsible life and you've got that foundation, right? You can you can afford to be a little bit careless with the stuff that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the stuff that doesn't matter is all you focus on, you could probably fool her for a little bit, but then it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna come crashing down. And it doesn't matter if you think that it's because you didn't explain something or you didn't say the joke right. She's going to be like, I don't care about that. I care about the fact that you're a loser. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so like the idea that it like our economy, right? So most of our economy, I hear this all the time with people, this, this misconception that they throw around where they're like, oh, isn't spending good for the economy? That's good, right? Well, if the spending is built on debt and that debt is funded by printed printing money that's unsustainable it can't last forever so you're like the guy who's just putting the appearance of being wealthy just to get the girl like you're not going to keep that up forever and so this is if that whole thing is built on psychology this facade it's so fragile that's not the place you want to be in you want to be in a place where it's built on trust and honesty and like if you had an economy that's built on, uh, you know, you don't constantly need people to be burning a hole in their pocket with their money, like just buying everything they see left and right. Like your economy should be able to work just fine, like have a healthy level of employment, whether or not people are in a mood to spend a lot or in a mood to save more or whatever. It should be able to withstand those flows of psychology one way or the other. Um, and if you're in the if you find yourself in this setting where it's like we cannot risk a lapse of confidence, we're just like that guy. We can't risk a lapse in her uh, uh, judging us as something we're not because the whole thing will come crashing down. Like that is a very precarious position to be put in. And so you can see this getting worse and worse. 2008, we're taking unprecedented measures of printing money. And they said, this is temporary. We're never going to do it again. You know, like uh, this is a one-time thing. We're going to unwind it. That's what they said. And so if you look at a graph of their balance sheet, well, okay. In 2008, they start the printing presses. It gets up to four and a half trillion. Okay. It stays that way for 10 years. Now we're in 2018, they're like, okay, it's time. We're at full employment, basically. Everything's looking good. Everything's fine. We can finally start to unwind this thing. Okay. They do this for about six months. They get it down to like 3.8 trillion. So they cut it by like around half a trillion. And then everything hits the fan. (laughs) And so stock market starts to crash. Yeah. It goes down 13% in nine days last <laughs> yeah. December. Yeah. And so they're like, all right, hold on, hold on, hold on. Now the repo market's exploding. They're like, okay, okay, we got to step in. But there's like, no, it's just a, it's a technical glitch. It's like, no, I swear I'm rich. No, like that, like that's totally my car. It's like, I just, you got to believe me. You got to <laughs> believe me. Like everything's fine. Yeah, I swear exactly. everything's great. And it's like, 
But now, here they are, printing money at a rate almost equivalent. Well, before this recent announcement, it was, it was almost as much as uh, quantitative easing in 2008. But now, if, with that additional... Four trillion that they just announced, or four hundred billion that they just announced. That's going to bring us right back up to where we were before we started unwinding. Like we lasted six months uh, of tightening. That's it. That's all we lasted, and everything went haywire. You know, like stuff just started springing leaks without that excess cash. So that cash. It was printed, but it's here to stay. It's never going away. That was a fantasy. And so at the end of the day, hopefully we don't have to keep printing more. But, you know, that's kind of, that might be a little optimistic. Uh, you know, we might be stuck in this system in which the only way to keep it going is to keep printing more and more money. And... You know, the downsides to that are, are pretty huge. If you just keep printing money over and over and over again, you're going to destroy your currency. And that's the foundation of an economy. If you, if you don't have a currency, a functioning currency, you have nothing. And there's tons of examples all throughout history of that. So, Yeah, so <clears throat> what I... One of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast and what I wanted to kind of convey, if we go back to that analogy of the, the guy and his girlfriend, um, is that I want, like we, all of the citizens of the U.S., we are the girlfriend. You know, <laughs> and the government and the Federal Reserve is the boyfriend. And if the boyfriend does this thing in 2008 where, you know, it's like super unprecedented, kind of crazy... Not in a good way, like irresponsible, mm -hmm. you know. And you say to yourself, is this really sustainable? Like, should we really believe that this is like the, our future, like this is the best future for us? Mm -hmm. Right? We, we, as the girlfriend, <laughs> when it comes to like a time like this, like, you know, hearing what f the Federal Reserve came out and said, what Jerome Powell came out and said last week, um, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just, you know, this is just just addressing like a technical issue. We're still trying to understand what, you know, it's, n it's not an actual problem that needs to be addressed. It's just something we're like re researching and trying to understand what went wrong, like just downplaying it, saying it's not mm -hmm. a big deal. We <laughs> have to be the girlfriend that says enough is enough. Like, stop <laughs> telling me this. Yeah, right? it's almost we like we're being gaslit. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like, What's, they're like, you're just mean? being, oh, you don't know the other term. So gaslighting someone is like, uh, when you basically deny all their uh, thoughts and feelings and reasons as them just being crazy. Like, oh, you're just, you're nuts. You're being crazy. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah. they're just like, they're like, yeah, everything's fine. And if, if you act like, okay, wait, no, hold on. Just, I have a few concerns. <laughs> they're like, no, right. everything's fine. Everything's fine. And it's just like, they act like, you're you're out of your mind if if this stuff seems fishy or like you know you just you just think maybe we shouldn't be trusting them to do all this like i don't know it's just they no one ever really talks about this and like john said exactly. that's that's kind of why we want to do start podcasts is to just start the conversation 
because I, there's a good chance this starts to get really ugly for us. And the last thing we want is people finding scapegoats in the wrong places. Like, hopefully, if we have a record of, like, all the things going wrong here, then people can say, okay, there's some credibility here, like, X, Y, and Z. You know, we we saw the problems then. They continued. They got worse. And then here we are. Versus people just being blindsided over the head. Then getting up. It's like if you're at a bar and you get punched in the back of the head and you go and you fall down and you're like you just get up and you just hit the first person you see cuz <laughs> you're just like yeah. who hit me and then you just punch the first guy you see it's like yeah. that's i i feel like that's exactly what's going to happen we're going to get blindsided yeah. over the head cuz we most people aren't looking at what's coming they don't see it coming and so they're going to just assign blame to the first like culprit they can find and it's not going to help solve the problem. Like we need to take a step back and see where that punch came from so that we can correctly turn and punch that guy in the face. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, you already see it. You already see what like people are so happy to say like, oh, the stock market is up. The stock mm-hmm. market's up, you know, 20% this year mm-hmm. uh, or, or more hitting all time highs. But then that same person's like, Oh, wealth inequality in this country is rampant, is running mm-hmm. rampant, right? So you're cheering for, you know, you might have a hundred thousand dollars in stocks, mm-hmm. you know, you have your whole four hundred one k or whatever. You you have a some amount of money, which is a hundred thousand is not a meager amount by any means, mm-hmm. but you know, it, someone who's like well on their way through their career, saving up for retirement, a hundred thousand dollars in stocks. It's like, yeah, yeah, twenty percent. That's congratulations that's twenty thousand extra dollars that you wouldn't have had Mm -hmm. so you're right to be happy that's a you know Mm -hmm. that's definitely something to cheer on but you know who has 10 million in stocks (laughs) the one percent right everyone in the one percent has so much more to gain from stocks going up Mm -hmm. so to just cheer that stocks are going up while also condemning the one percent getting ultra wealthy well (laughs) you're just you're not you're not properly assessing the bl- like if you're blaming the one percent for that, well, they're just as happy as you <laughs> that their money is gaining value, right. right? For the same reason that you're happy. Like, why are you mad, mad at them for what you're happy about? Right. Yeah, and uh, like, it, it's really amazing how much they're not talking about four hundred twenty-five billion dollars in one month. Like, this is this amount of money is half of. Uh, the federal deficit, right? So they're not directly paying for the deficit with this money. But if you've ever seen Rick and Morty, there's this one episode where uh, Rick builds this uh, battery. He like builds a little universe. This show is like a sci-fi show. And he builds this little universe in that. And he has the people like run on a treadmill and he siphons like a little of their power to run his car and uh his friend is like that just sounds like slavery with extra steps (laughs) and if you look at what the fed's doing right now it's like no they're not directly funding the deficit but what are they buying they're buying treasuries okay that's the u.s uh government's method of uh um issuing debt 
And so if they keep buying treasuries with all this money they're printing, they're making it easier for the government to spend money because they can do it at a lower rate. So it's like they're not directly printing money to pay off the spending, but it's like they're just adding extra steps. <laughs> so it's like... Yeah, it's what they're doing. It's just uh, one, like once or twice removed. <laughs> right. Being directly... And that may not be the goal of what they're doing, but at the end of the day, that's what they're enabling. And so if they're printing $400 billion of money to buy treasuries, they're going to keep enabling these ballooning deficits that are going to basically bankrupt us. And so this may not be the intention of what they're doing, but it's the effect. And like, who really cares what their intention is if, they're, if the effect is going to ruin us yeah we've 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 spoken in a a previous episode about why the federal debt is such a problem that debt grows each year uninhibited because of actions of the federal reserve Mm -hmm. the federal reserve is okay it's not directly (laughs) writing blank checks that Mm -hmm. the federal the federal treasury is cashing in but they're essentially doing that Mm -hmm. uh, right if if almost half of the deficit that's expended in one year by the federal treasury is simultaneously printed by the federal reserve you got to start asking like <laughs> <laughs> it's if you if you have like a a a hose and you're pouring in to a bucket and the bucket's leaking at the same rate the hose is like you know, someone says, here, here's another hose <laughs> or, you know, here, tap into my water supply. Mm-hmm. Right. Keep filling up that bucket. Mm. Whereas a sane person would go patch the leak. <laughs> Why don't you patch the leak? That's your problem. Right. That's you wouldn't have to tap into any more excess water. Mm-hmm. You don't have to create more water source. <laughs> just patch the leak and you're fine. Right. But but for, for okay. the government, it's yeah, easier like- to just. <laughs> to double down and just get more water <laughs> and have the leak expand to be twice as big. <laughs> right. And I mean, the, the, the analogy kind of ends there, but the, the reality is that when you, when your hose is more money, it, it's, it's not good for us because it basically eats away at our savings. If you have high inflation, that's like devastating to an economy. If you can't, especially if you have high and unpredictable inflation, because then it's impossible to plan anything. If you accept a job and you have no idea, like they'll give it, they'll put a number on a piece of paper, but you don't know what that's going to get you. That's, it's very hard to have contracts and deals and agreements and all these things that make the economy run. If you have no idea what that number that people are writing down is going to translate to a year from now. Right. Yeah, most people that live in our country today, that are U.S., you know, grew up in the U.S., they're familiar with, you know, they've, they've had price stability for their whole lives, essentially, um, to, a, to a degree, mm-hmm. right? So they, their payment in dollars has stayed relatively stable over time. So that purchasing power that Jeff was talking about can kind of be maintained. Mm-hmm. So that $10 this year gets you about what it gets you next year, mm-hmm. right? There's certain examples of when that's not necessarily the case, but it's not, on, it, it's not like it was 
unimaginable. Like press st- stability got so bad it was like, you know, in some countries where you wake up and one, you know, one denomination of their currency becomes one hundredth of what it used to be. Right? <laughs> right. So no one in the in in our country for a long time has had to, or really ever has had to deal with mm-hmm. with uh, with that. Some people lend that credit to the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, thank goodness we have a Federal Reserve because they're maintaining price stability. Mm-hmm. I would lend more credit to just you know we just had a good economy. We through through a like freedom and through. Uh, good government for a lot of it. Well, I, well, I, I'd eat. Well, I'd say good uh, government, meaning the government stayed out of the way for a lot of things. Yeah, did less. <laughs> <laughs> um, that allowed the economy to become healthy. And then the dollar that's denominated through the entity that's uh, taxing that economy, right? So it's kind of deriving its value through from the healthiness of that economy remains stable. Mm-hmm. Um I would actually lend the blame on the Federal Reserve for all of the inflation that has occurred. 96% of the dollar um, 100 years ago is now worth, well, how should I say? One dollar 100 years ago is now 96% less valuable than it, than it is. So that's not even really price stability. That's Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's weird, right? So like what we've asked of the Fed is to maintain price stability, but we've never even really defined what that means. And so they've just sort of, in recent history, chosen 2% inflation is price stability. But for all you people who aren't math magicians out there, if you have 2% growth uh, year after year, that's exponential growth, right? That's like not... Linear growth would be like a line, like it's just a steady increase in something. That's what I would deem as, you could call that stable, right? Or just a straight flat line that never goes up, that's stable. But I think as long as it's linear, that's pretty stable. But 2% increase in price every year is not linear, it's exponential. That's exponential growth in the prices. So it's weird that we define that as stability. That just doesn't really right. make sense to me. Yeah. And and the Federal Reserve, they really take it take it to heart. This two percent target, which we can talk about was not really the case. Like what Jeff was just saying, that's not really stability. Well around nineteen seventy three, I think they they took that upon themselves to say two percent per year is stable. Mm-hmm. And therefore and then just this year, or like r- right around the end of last year, they decided that a symmetric two percent inflation target is what stable was what stable means. So if any year inflation runs below two percent, the next year it should run above two percent. And they've really taken this to heart, as can be witnessed in the latest uh, Federal Reserve kind of uh, press conference. He must have said a hundred times, right? We're seeking this inflation target. We need more inflation. More inflation is good for the economy. We need to increase inflation expectations. We need to we need to have symmetric two percent inflation. Inflation below two percent means we need higher than two percent inflation. Right. It's just like Jeff, you mentioned this earlier on. You know, you said this a while ago, but you said inflation can be disastrous for an economy. Like you don't know what your value. Like if inflation runs too hot, you don't know what your currency is worth. You know, in the short term, mm-hmm. potentially, which is you can't you can't transact at that point. Money loses its function. 
So it's like, why is the Federal Reserve... I'll never understand that. Why do they come out and say... Well, I do understand, which we can talk about later, <laughs> yeah. like what that... I mean, they have incentives to do it, yeah. Right. It's, it's partly derived from the fact that they want to do, to monetize the government debt, um, that they say inflation, we should allow for inflation because they kind of know that it's coming. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but they, yeah, they're just, they're just selling us this like, oh, like, <laughs> they're selling us this completely irrational, completely unstable thing like, this is what we need. This, you know, trust me. This is what we need. Listen to me. This is, this will make it all all work out, all worthwhile. Listen, really, child. Like, we, I'll make it all better. <laughs> We're just yeah, like, okay, like, no. dad. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's like that, it, it, the crazy thing is, um, you know, n- what, none of this stuff is derived from any anywhere. Like, there's no laws math, of nature yeah. or math or nothing. Like. There's not even yeah. like good statistical data or anything like that for this. Right. And yet this is the basis of everything that they're doing. And, you know, they just like, yeah, 2% inflation, that's, or even, and if it's not, if it's lower than 2%, that's got to be even higher. But I think all they're really doing is they know higher inflation isn't coming and they just want people not to panic because they, they not only say we need higher inflation, they want people to expect higher inflation. They need both, right? Mm-hmm. They want people yeah. to expect higher inflation because if they don't expect it, what are they going to do? They're going to start selling their treasuries because they're going to be like, whoa, 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 where's all this inflation coming from? Like all these treasuries I have, are they're, they're not going to yield nearly enough to cover this inflation. And then that would be literally catastrophic. If there was like a panic sell in the u.s bond market that would be absolutely catastrophic for the u.s government so yeah it they're just in such a precarious position and i think maybe they do realize how precarious it is and they're just i think they see the path out as potentially just just a slow burn like just slowly inflate away all the debt and crap we've accumulated it and just just get people on board for that and then just we'll slowly burn our way out. That's kind of how they they I think see the escape route is. But the reality is they're just enabling the government to even get further into debt. And so it's like mm-hmm. you know, it, they're just moving the bar for them. They're not the, the incentives don't change. If you make it easier for them to borrow, they're just going to keep borrowing. It's almost like they they are right in the sense that they've done way more than I expected would be possible. Mm-hmm. Like printing four trillion dollars, mm-hmm. you know, to me a rational a rational investor, like a foreign investor, would say, uh, "Hold up, I don't want any part of this." <laughs> right. Um, but just this, the fact that the dollar is kind of the the world standard, the uh, global currency, global mm-hmm. standard. Um, meant people just bought up dollars anyway like it didn't really affect it so they could have been right i think to get this far into it but i think they would have been right to create an exit strategy that's actual actually sustainable so if they like reeled in government spending while mm-hmm. printing this much money and they cut they probably could have created a soft exit but i don't think <laughs> i don't think it's going to go forever like i don't i don't i don't think there's any way that 
I think they're operating on an assumption that, oh, like quantitative easing, you know, for six years, four trillion, it worked. We can probably do another four trillion, maybe, <laughs> they're thinking. Right. You know, maybe we'll do 12 trillion. But I personally, I don't think that it, that's good. Like, it when I, as soon as I saw the four trillion, you know, as I was researching and learning about history, I was like, that doesn't make any sense, <laughs> right? Okay, it worked out. Well, the best thing to do would never is never try that again. Like you got away with one, right? You right. Got it's away like with it's three, like you rob you rob the bank and you're like, well, I got away with it, so I should do it again, right? It's like no, yeah. you're just maybe you will get away with it again, but if you just keep doing it, you're gonna get caught eventually. Yeah. Like there's a some probability it's not gonna work eventually. Every time. And then once, like, if in the bank robbery analogy, like, it's, as soon as you get caught, it's over. It's it. You're done. Forever. <laughs> so yeah. it's just like, you know, we should be, not, we shouldn't be trying this so blazingly. Yeah. Like, it, it's like, because yeah. as soon as it, it blows up in our face, we're screwed. So. <laughs> yeah. It's just like. It, right. We, we should at least. Treat it like we robbed a bank and got it away with it. <laughs> right. like we should be saying like, wow, we are lucky. Like, how do we reel <laughs> ourselves back in? How do we create a sustainable economy? Right. Right. That was crazy what we had to do after 2008. <laughs> like, let's make sure that never happens again. But it, instead, we're like, oh, we have the greatest economy ever. Yeah. You know, stock market. <laughs> just look at the stock market and be happy. Yeah. And it's just like, no. Like, <laughs> look at unemployment. Unemployment's low. Oh, be happy with that. Like, oh, there, you know, we, there was never a problem. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> you don't understand. Do you want to talk about Exxon more? Uh, I think we talked enough for this episode. Okay. Maybe we'll do that next episode. Yeah. Yeah. We were at 50 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening to us. Uh, thanks for doing less. Hopefully the Federal Reserve can start doing less. They're doing a whole lot right now. They're doing okay. 400 billion units right. of a lot. <laughs> Come on, that, that is certified, <laughs> certified, quantified by Jeff. You yeah. heard it here. <laughs> uh, we'll see. We'll see what what's in store for us. Maybe this will be the last dollars they ever need to print, and then everything will be fine. But. That remains to be seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll come out and we'll say we are we're wrong. <laughs> what we saw what we saw as a crisis as a potential crisis was actually nothing. But yeah. We'll, we'll be we'll the first the, to admit, yep, everything was actually fine. They that was it. Yeah. That was the last 400 we ever needed. Then we were in the clear and everything smooth sailing from there. <laughs> like hopefully that's hopefully that's what happens, you know? I don't want the Yeah world to implode but yeah who knows <laughs> yeah certainly All right. see you next time see you next time <laughs>